0: So my family can vouch for this. Actually, let's pray, and then I'll start. Lord Jesus Christ, we need you. We adore you. We love you. And as we contemplate your word this morning, may we know that you are here with us through our own wilderness experiences. And it's in your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. So my family can vouch for this, but... I, my secret desire, my secret wish is that I could fly. Uh, I, I wish I could fly. If, if I'm ever uh, given the option to be Superman or Batman, I'm, I'm going to choose Superman because he can fly, um, not for any other reason. I kind of love the gadgetry of Batman, but flying is going to trump that any day. Uh, in fact, I love movies where the characters can fly. Uh, if, if a movie has flying in it, I'm all about it. It's a five-star, two-thumbs-up kind of movie. I'm, I'm thrilled to watch it. So, especially things like Peter Pan, you know, when the pixie dust gets sprinkled on on Peter and the and the kids, and they're able to just float into the air, I love it. I love it. I just feel my heart kind of well up within me, and I wanna I wanna be there. I wanna do that with them. Mary Poppins, you know, she takes the kids on a flying adventure as well. Uh, or even in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, when they drink that fizzy water and they start to bubble up and kind of float through the air, I'm like, yes, <laughs> like I love this movie so much. Well, Molly and I, a few years ago, we were watching a movie called Finding Neverland. And this tells the story of the author of Peter Pan. And there's uh, very interesting characters throughout. It's a beautiful movie. And one of the characters has cancer. And towards the end of the movie, uh, they're, they're watching the play unfold. And, and the mother in this story is extremely sick. And it's, it's pretty evident that she's going to pass. Uh, and I, I forget, maybe she has passed by this moment. But then you see the kids start to fly through the air and, and I, just, I was just so overwhelmed with emotion. These tears started rolling down my face. And Molly leans over and she's like, oh, are, are you crying because the mother is about to die? And I'm like, no, no, they're flying. It's so beautiful, they're flying. You see, I wish I could do that. I wish I could be in the story. I wish that I could jump into the story and participate with them and actually leap into the clouds uh, along with them. Well, the story of Jesus is unlike any other story that's been told. It's a story. We believe that this Bible, this word, is living and active. That the word actually speaks to us. The word woos us in. It draws us in closer to Jesus' presence. And we're actually invited to participate in this story. Not like any other book that's out there. We can actually participate in this story. Now, that word participate, it's a word that Anglicans love. Uh, You might hear us toss this word participation around quite a bit. Uh, These services, even already, you've been participating. We kneel, we confess our sins. You're not here to be entertained or, um, you know, to, yeah, to be entertained. You're here to actually participate, to work, to do spiritual work, and to receive spiritual nourishment here at the table. This isn't some sort of um, sit back and relax kind of service. We're unashamedly participatory. So we get to participate with God uh, in his work. Another way that we do this is by uh, experiencing the the church calendar. And you've heard, if you've been here since, uh, for a few months, you've been walking with us through the church calendar, beginning in Advent, right? When we're waiting for Jesus, we're waiting for the birth of the King to come. And then in Christmas, we get to celebrate the arrival of the King. Messiah is actually here now. And then for the past six weeks, we've been celebrating Epiphany, God's light shining forth, throughout all the nations so that every tribe and kingdom can hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that he's here. Someone's here to rescue us. And then this culminates with Transfiguration Sunday, which Molly preached about last week. and I wish I could have been here to hear about it. I hear it was great. Um, but we go with Jesus up onto the mountain and we see him radiant, radiate in all of his glory. Well, this is the first Sunday of Lent. And so now, in practicing Lent, what we get to do is we get to walk down that mountain of transfiguration with Jesus and the disciples, and slowly we descend into Jerusalem, to the trial, to the, and then eventually to the crucifixion, to the cross of Christ. And so this is our journey uh, for these next six weeks. We get to participate in this story. Well, today, this is the first Sunday of Lent, and we're going we're gonna to look at two different stories that are in our text this morning. Uh, they're both told in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking at the baptism of Jesus and then the temptation of Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be like, well, hang on a second, Rick. Uh, chronologically, isn't that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry? I mean, it's, it's Mark chapter 1. Yes, it is, you know, true. However, this is thematically setting the stage for Lent. Uh, those who put our readings together have placed this here because it's thematically setting the stage for Lent. So it's kind of like when you watch a movie and right before you get to the final scenes of the movie, the main character starts having these flashbacks of things that have happened previously. And so what we're doing here is we're saying, aha, that's why those moments happened. And so as we're, able, as we're approaching these final scenes, we have the freshness of Jesus' uh, baptism and temptation at the forefront of our minds. So let's take a minute this morning to remember where we have been coming from. So uh, turn your bulletins open to the first chapter of Mark, uh, starting at verse 9, or if your Bibles open uh, to that, or if you have your Bibles, please open them to that as well. So first, the baptism of Jesus. This is a cosmic event. Cataclysmic things are happening here. Now sometimes we think of the Gospel of John as kind of that cataclysmic, or sort of cosmic gospel, but here we're seeing these major things happening here in the Gospel of Mark as well. We see that the heavens are torn open. We see that the Spirit is poured out upon Jesus. And then this voice speaks out, this booming voice over Jesus Christ. Jesus is being spoken of as no other prophet ever has. So I'd like to talk about each one of those three cosmic things that are happening. So first of all, the longing of all the Old Testament prophets is coming to fulfillment here at this moment, at the baptism. Isaiah says in his writings, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever wanted God's spirit to just pour, or you wanted the heavens to open up and God's spirit to just pour out upon you? Well, the people of Israel have felt that way for 400 years. They've been having these words of Isaiah just ringing in their ears for 400 years. They've been desiring that God would send another prophet to them and speak to them again. And so here, it happens. The heavens are torn open and its contents are spilled out upon the earth. This isn't some Thomas Kincaid painting where this gentle, beautiful light is kind of trickling down upon Jesus and he's got these water beads just kind of dripping from his face. No, the heavens are torn open. This is terrifying. Can you imagine what this would look like? I think Mark is especially short and brief here because he wants to leave it up to our imaginations to guess what this would look like. Well, then the second thing that happens at the baptism is that the spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. Now again, Mark is kind of ambiguous here. The other gospel writers, they'll say that the spirit descended um, in the form of a dove, kind of brings some more clarity to it. But Mark here, it's kind of like it, it was a likeness of dove. You know, it's, uh, who knows exactly what it happen, happened here, but something supernatural descended from heaven and descended upon Jesus. Something supernatural happened. And by saying like a dove... Uh, what, what Mark is doing is he's kind of alluding to, as you might have guessed, the story of Noah, in which Noah sends that dove out, and then it returns, holding that olive branch, symbolizing that peace is on the horizon. All of that cleansing from the flood, all, all those waters, that's about to descend, or to rescind. Peace is now coming. God's love has kept you safe for these 40 days. So the third thing that happens at the baptism is that we hear a voice The father is declaring his love and delight over his son. You are my beloved son, he says. With you I am well pleased. Now that title, beloved son, that is a very, very unique and special title. In the Old Testament, it's only used of the nation Israel or of Israel's kings. That's the only only times in which that sonship is offered. And that sonship was also, as you know, never really perfectly modeled, was it? The Israelites goofed up all the time. The kings, none of them were perfect. All of them goofed up all the time. But here we see that that title is placed on Jesus Christ. He is the good and beloved son, the faithful son. So this kind of begs the question, why was Jesus baptized? Have you ever wondered that? Why was Jesus baptized? Is it because he's a sinner and he needs all of his filth washed away from him? No, that's not the case and we can't let our american individualism kind of steer that question or steer the answer for it you see what jesus is doing is he's vicariously taking upon himself the identity of the nation of israel he is reenacting for us he's modeling for us what we ought to be doing it's as if he's saying lord christ or as if he's saying to god wash me as this nation needs to be washed he is he is starting to redeem the history of god's people and live that out. You see, Jesus is baptized because he is the new Israel. He is the obedient son. And I keep pointing that out because some, some folks have never heard that before. I remember having a conversation with someone who's, uh, one of my dear friends who's been a Christian all of her life, and she was like, I've never heard that Jesus is the new Israel. And it's like, yes, this is, this is a critical piece to understanding the life of Christ. He is fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies. He is... He is um, walking perfectly where Israel faltered. He is completely obedient to the Father. So this baptism is supposed to be this cataclysmic event. And as you can imagine, we can talk all morning about just the baptism of Christ, but we need to move on, don't we? But what we see here is that he is good, the good Israel, the divine Son of God. So I wonder, uh, throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry, how often did he remember his baptism? Is that something that he thought about a lot? You know, as he went into Galilee and cast out demons, uh, as he um, healed the sick, as he confronted the scribes, how often did he think of his baptism? You know, as we descend into Lent, into this wilderness experience of our own, it would be very good for us to remember our baptisms as well. In fact, our baptisms should be the center of our identity. Before we're white or black, before we're rich or poor, before we're male or female, young or old, you are baptized. That is the core who, uh, identity of who we are. Martin Luther, as his feet would hit the ground before getting out of, as he was getting out of bed every single morning, he would cross himself to remind himself of his baptism. As he went into all the troubles of his life, he would remind himself that he belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has been claimed by the Father. So, we are filled with the Spirit of God. But we are not filled just to remain in those waters. No, we can't stay in our baptismal waters forever. I wonder if maybe Christ wanted to stay in that moment and kind of extend that moment in those waters with the heavens being poured upon him, with the voice speaking over him. But no, Christ was called to go into the wilderness. It would have been easy on the mountain of transfiguration to pitch tent up there. In fact, that's what Peter wanted to do, right? He's like, oh, let's, let's build some tabernacles. Let's hang out here. This is great. But no, Jesus is called to descend down into Jerusalem and go to the cross. And you and I, we can't stay in our places of comfort either. No, we need to enter into the wildernesses of our lives. The same spirit who anoints is the same spirit who commissions and sends. In fact, the text tells us that Jesus was driven into the wilderness This is where God's son meets God's adversary. So let's move to the next part and see what happens here. In verse 12, it says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. and He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals, but the angels were ministering to him. So how long was Jesus there? He was there for 40 days. Now, immediately, we've just read our Genesis passage. We should know what that kind of triggers for us. So 40 days, that's a symbol there. That's a, that's, a, um, that's a number that symbolizes these wilderness experiences that have happened throughout the Old Testament. The, the ark was adrift for 40 days. Israel wandered throughout the wilderness for 40, days, or 40 years. Moses was on um, Mount Sinai for 40 days. Elijah's wander, Elijah wandered through the wilderness for 40 days as well. You see, these are moments in Israel's history when they were both tested, but also when they were refreshed when they were renewed as well. And Jesus is re-walking this path. He's rewalking this path. Again, just as the baptism, he's doing it here in the temptations as well. So what happens when he's out in the wilderness? Well, first he's being tempted by Satan. This is God's adversary. And we see this. God or Satan kind of acts uh, throughout the scriptures as the one who's pointing out the sins of others. We see this. Um, portrayed beautifully in Job when Satan comes before God and says, I want to I drill this guy, I want to pick on this guy. And so we we'll see that happening again here in the wilderness. You see, what Satan is trying to do is trying to subvert God's plans, God's reign, God's kingdom. He's trying to subvert it, trying to delay it. And Mark leaves this, this testing ambiguous, doesn't he? The other gospel writers, again, they kind of want to fill it in. They want to tell us a little bit more of what happened. But Mark, he he leaves it kind of ambiguous. And I think the reason why is he wants us to be drawn into the story again. He wants us to participate with us in the story. Because the scriptures tell us that Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I were. But here we see that he passes the test. We also see that the wild beasts were there in the wilderness with him. And so the picture that we get of Jesus is he's among the wild beasts. Satan is, is nagging him. Satan is grilling him. This land is untamed, it's unpredictable, and it's quite dangerous. It's quite dangerous. So I've, I've had the honor of doing a few weddings um, as a pastor, and it's one of my most favorite things to do. But there's a part in our Anglican wedding liturgy that is, is always a little awkward and uncomfortable, but I love it. Like, it's great. And I always try to encourage the couples, like, please do this, please keep this in the liturgy. So there's this moment in which the, the pastor stands up in front of everyone who's there. And the pastor says, if anyone here knows just cause as to why these two should not be wed, you know what the rest of the phrase goes? Molly. Well, of course, Molly, you know. <laughs> Good job, Molly, you passed. <laughs> Speak now or forever hold your peace, right? Speak now or forever hold your peace. And this is a test of sorts. Oh, and it's so uncomfortable to stand there you know, before all of your loved ones. Because of course there's some loved ones who's probably said to you, are you sure you want to marry this guy? Like there's other options out there. You don't have to settle for this guy. <laughs> Wasn't your dad? Or no, your mom was told that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is a really fun moment in the liturgy. Because people have an opportunity to speak up. They have an opportunity to come and say um, maybe the beef that they have, Right? Now, these days, people don't actually do that, especially in Minnesota. We're, we're much too polite for that kind of craziness. But by enduring through this, it's in effect saying that everyone there, everyone here, they haven't spoken up. They're in your corner. They're on your side. They want to see your marriage succeed. They want to see this um, turn into a, a beautiful, long thing. They're in your corner. So this is like a good test. This shows kind of the, the beauty of what testing can reveal to us. So why is Jesus tested? Because he's victorious over it. He's victorious over it. He's victorious over Satan. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious among all of, like, the, the weird, gnarly things in our creation. You see, where God's people grumbled and God's prophets succumbed to sin, Jesus doesn't falter. He, does, he goes into this. He walks the same path as Israel without grumbling, without bouts of anger, without questioning God's purposes. He's entered the fighting ring, and he emerges victorious. Jesus, who is Israel reduced to one, is the faithful son. I hope you're picking that up this morning. So as I've been reading over this text, there's this one phrase that kind of jumps out, and it's kind of curious to me. It's kind of curious to me. It's the phrase, "...and he was with the wild animals." And this is a phrase that's kind of stumped a lot of the commentators as well. Because as I've mentioned, Mark, he loves alluding to the Old Testament. He loves making those connections for his readers. And he's usually very um, short and punchy and strategic in all of the phrases that he uses. In all of your free time, you should go read a commentary on the Gospel of Mark. You you would love it. (laughs) That can be your Lenten exercise. How about that? I've loved it. So like I said, he uses very vivid use of the Old Testament, as you've seen. And so some commentators have wondered, okay, so this, this allusion to the wild animals, is this some kind of link to uh, the creation story where maybe Adam and Eve are among the wild animals and so now Jesus is kind of at peace with them? But you know, that, that kind of seems like a bit of a stretch. And some people wonder, well, is this kind of an allusion to Isaiah when he says that the lion and the lamb will lie down with one another? But again, that's, that's kind of a stretch because when you look at this passage, you, you get the idea that the wild animals, they're, they're kind of linked to Satan. And so it's as if like, they're contributing to the, the um, unknownness unknownness of, of the environment, of the situation. Well, I think part of the answer to this is you have to remember when the Gospel of Mark was written. And pay attention here because this is, this is really cool. This is, this is great. So... Mark's go- Mark, if you recall, he was the. Uh, these they are having a party back there, aren't they? <laughs> so, Mark's gospel, or Mark was the um, companion of Peter, the apostle, who's sometimes called Simon throughout the text. So, Mark was his translator along all of his missionary journeys. In fact, you can read about these two interacting throughout the book of Acts. And so, Peter was the primary source for this gospel. So as the apostles were spreading the stories throughout, uh, the Middle, or throughout the Mediterranean world, Mark and Peter were traveling as well. And church tradition tells us that they ended up in Rome. They ended up in Rome. And this is when a lot of Christians were being persecuted and killed. And tradition tells us that Peter was one of those Christians who was killed. So the, um, the apostle Peter, tradition tells us that he was crucified upside down. And so you can imagine Mark, either towards the end of Peter's life or after Peter was killed, Mark is wanting to write down these stories that he's been learning about Jesus so that the teachings of the apostles would be able to be passed on to the next generation and to the next and to the next. And so this is also the pastoral need of why Mark's gospel was written. And so um, he's writing so that the, the Christians can remember the story from generation to generation. Well, if you know your history, you know what else was going on in Rome at this time. Again, this is about the mid-60s or so. There was a great fire in Rome. And Nero, the crazy emperor, he blamed the Christians for this fire that destroyed so much of Rome. So because of this, there was a heavy persecution going on against the Christians. Friends were turning them in, saying, this is a Christian, and turning them into the authorities. They were being jailed. They were being beaten. And... As we know, they were being fed to the wild animals in the Colosseum. Mark is reminding his Christians, reminding the Christian believers there, that Christ is with you. He has entered into these experiences with you. Christ himself has been among the wild animals. Just as as these Christians were being betrayed by their friends, Christ has been there. He knows what that's like just as they've been jailed and beaten and put on trial, Jesus Christ knows what that is like. And even when they're eventually condemned and fed to the animals, Jesus Christ is with them. And in that, in that moment, the angels are ministering to him. Can you imagine how comforting that would have been to those early believers? Knowing that even in the midst of their death, that the angels can be there ministering to them. And then like Jesus, their death would be a testimony to the Romans around them. If we fast forward a little bit and think about Jesus' death on the cross, who is there? There's this Roman centurion who declares, surely this is the Son of God. So just as it's uh, comforting to those early Christians, it should be comforting to us as well. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, for we have a high priest in heaven who in every respect has been tempted as we are, Yet he is without sin and he sympathizes us with us in our weakness. So this Lent, some of you are taking a symbolic journey throughout Lent. You're, maybe you've um, picked up some of our, our resources in the back and you've decided to walk through Lent in a very symbolic way. You're preparing for when difficult times are about to emerge in your own life. But you're walking with Christ uh, as he approaches the cross. But some of you this season are actually in a real season of wilderness. Lent is actually very real for you to be experiencing right now. This is a wilderness experience for you. The temptations are abounding at your left and your right. And maybe you feel like those Christians who are being fed to the wild animals. So the good news for you this morning is that Jesus Christ is with you. That we actually, as we are participating in this Lenten experience, Christ has already been participating with us before we even knew it. He is here walking with us. So I hope that that that's comforting to you this morning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.